0: There we go. (laughs) It's on me. Usually those guys get blamed. Not always them. All right, turn with me in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came... She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for the Christ who came into the world to rescue sinners. We thank you that we saw that reality on display here this morning. And we thank you for this beautiful passage in which Jesus counters Martha and ministers to her in her time of grief. Lord, we pray that as we peer now into this text and we meditate upon these glorious realities that you would come and be working in our hearts to behold Christ, to see his glory all the more that we may be transformed from glory to glory as we become more like him every day. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are. May our time of preaching and hearing the word be unto your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, what a beautiful display of, of God's power that we have already witnessed this morning in these, in these baptisms, especially at Christmas. This is a stark reminder to us all of, of why Christ came into the world in the first place, to rescue a people for himself and to give new life. That is what we sing about every year at the same time at Christmas. As we we just sang in Charles Wesley's beautiful Hark the Herald Angels, Mild he lays his glory by, Born that man no more may die, Born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. Amen. These these baptisms are a reflection of, of the ongoing ministry of Christ at work. A ministry that was revealed to the world through the incarnation at Christmas. He came to save sinners. Praise God. But for those of you who got baptized, you need to have firm in your mind that this is not the end. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Your life is now on a, on a different trajectory, and your walk with Christ has just begun. You live now for a different purpose. No longer is life for you about squeezing everything out of it, out of this world that you can. No longer is your life about yourself. It is about Christ. Your life is about Christ, because ultimately everything is about Christ. And honestly, that, that takes a lifetime of walking with Him to truly grasp. It's, it's one thing to know that intellectually, but it's, it's a whole nother to truly believe it and to truly grasp it. See, Sadly, in our day, in modern evangelicalism, often Christ and Christianity is, is sold in, in a such a way that it's really all about you is if, if Jesus is just the answer to all of your problems in life. If you just have Jesus, things will go well. Your job will be more satisfying. Your marriage will be wonderful. Your parenting will be successful. Life on earth will just be maximized if you have Jesus. I mean, surely if, if God is, is for us, then things will go well for us in this world, right? Wrong. That is not at all what the New Testament teaches. In fact, it teaches the very opposite. When the Apostle Paul was on his first missionary journey, he had been preaching the gospel in several cities in, in Asia Minor. And many Gentiles had come to believe the gospel, come to believe in Christ for the first time in that region. And I want you to listen to what Paul prioritized as a basic Lesson: A basic truth for new believers to understand and to grasp. Paul and Barnabas were in Derby in Acts fourteen twenty-one, and it says this: it "says When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the cities they had already preached to, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that." Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Christianity 101. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the thing you must understand. Paul is not saying this because life on earth is just hard and and we just merely have to deal with the realities of this fallen world just like anyone else. Certainly that's true, and, and that's part of it. But more than that, he knows that for the believer, God will actually intentionally lead His people into trials and into tribulations in this life. For our good. See, trials are not incidental in the Christian life. They are they are part of God's good and loving design for you who believe. Said another way, for the Christians, trials are a feature, not a bug, because they are working towards a a greater and a more glorious end. As we read this morning, as the Apostle Peter said quite well in 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, There are eternal realities at work in our temporal trials, and God employs them on purpose. And today we will explore what that purpose is for His people. What is it that could make life's most difficult trials, even in the face of death, even in the grief and loss of a loved one, a valuable experience? In the life of a believer. And there are perhaps few places that we see that more clearly than in this passage that we are working through right now. We began to look at this last time we were together. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we began this section. And John, John began this entire section by introducing this family and their trial and Jesus' love for these three individuals. Jesus got word that Lazarus was ill from Martha and Mary, his sisters, and because he loved them, he responded in a way that nobody expected. In fact, look back at at verse 5 with me, just to get this fresh in your mind. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, therefore, When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He delayed. He intentionally let Lazarus die before he departed. He intentionally let these sisters lose their brother without answers. And today we're going to see how this is love in Martha's life and by extension how the trials of our life and faith are God's love in our own lives for us who believe you see here's the reality if, if, if we're going to endure in our faith this is not just for new believers this is for all of us if we're going to endure then what we need is a faith that goes beyond intellectualism or sentimentalism. We need a a faith that, that breaks out of superficial affirmations of the truth. A faith that is pressed and tested in the fires and trials of life and thus is proven genuine. A faith that presses into the realities of who Christ truly is and treasures Him above all else. And because Jesus loves his sheep, he will see to it that if you are his, that kind of faith is is wrought in your soul. That kind of faith is developed in your heart. And that's what he's doing here with with Martha today, and perhaps with you. So we're just going to walk through this passage and look at this engagement between Jesus and Martha. Start, start with me. Look at verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So John doesn't tell us anything about the journey from where they were down to Bethany. The last thing that we saw prior to this was, was Jesus informing his disciples that Lazarus had died and it was time to go to him. And Thomas musters the courage to go and encourages the rest of the disciples that it is time to go. Let us all go. And he mustered the courage because all of them were assuming that to head back to Judea was a heading to their deaths. Let us all go and die with him, he said, because of the abiding hostility towards Christ in that region. And immediately after that statement from Thomas, John skips forward a few days to their arrival in Bethany. Now at this point, Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. For the Jews, they they typically did not waste any time between the point of death and burial. In in fact, it it was required in their culture that the burial take place on the same day as the death. And the fact that it had been four days, which John very intentionally points out, Shows that it had been long enough that no one could doubt what was going to happen. At this point, decomposition would have already been well underway. In fact, in, in verse 39, Martha is going to object to opening the tomb for that very reason the smell of a decomposing body. No one could question the reality that Lazarus was thoroughly dead. Now, if this happened immediately on the same day, some might just uh, offer the idea, the solution, that this was just a a resuscitation. There would be questioning as to the validity of of this miracle, but the way this was done, it left no room for that at all. But beyond that, there is more purpose to these four days than just ensuring Lazarus was thoroughly dead the fact that it had been four days also gives us some insight into the amount of time that Martha and Mary were just left without answers. Not only did Jesus not show up while Lazarus was ill, but for four days they had been grieving his loss, not knowing where Jesus is or why this has happened. They weren't alone. John makes it clear that many had come to them in their, in their time of grief. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, this this little tidbit of information here that John gives gives us a lot of insight into the scene at hand. It would seem that this family actually held a it was held in high regard and carried a high social standing. For it says that, that many, not a few, of the Jews had come from Jerusalem in their time of grief. See, it was, it was customary in Jewish culture, at, at the time of death, for the bereaved family to remain at home for a seven-day grieving period. The burial was day one, and then following that, the family was to stay seated at home for six days while others brought them food and comfort for their loss. And this custom actually had a name, it was called Shiva, a week-long mourning for the lost. And this family had many who had responded to their loss. But John highlights two things here that are meant to remind us of the danger at hand for Christ. One is the fact that Bethany was only about two miles away from Jerusalem. It was actually just a little bit less than two miles from the place where Jesus had just narrowly avoided being murdered and was a wanted man. And second, notice John chooses to refer to these comforters as the Jews not friends or loved ones, but the Jews. It's the same term he's been using to refer to those who have been hostile to Christ. Now, these are, these are obviously not the Jewish authorities who have tried to kill him, but they are Jews from Jerusalem who are likely very aware of everything that's been going on with Jesus. And they are about to witness what Jesus is going to do. And that's going to play into how this chapter ends when you have these split reactions. Some of them believe And some of them run to go report him to the authorities, leading to the final plot that leads to his death. But Jesus has has shown up in the middle of Shiva, in the middle of this grieving process. And when Martha hears about it, she breaks this Jewish custom in order to go to Jesus. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, I don't think we should read into the fact that Mary remained in the house. Some, some commentators try to extrapolate from that some reflections on the differences in their personalities, but I don't think that is valid here at all. I think it's quite clear in the text that Martha left without telling Mary. Mary didn't know. And because when Martha does tell her later on, Mary's going to do the exact same thing that Martha does. She runs to go and meet him. Likely, Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she just ran to him without a second thought and didn't tell her sister. But John highlights her remaining at home so that we understand that what unfolds is just with Martha. This is a conversation between Jesus and Martha, though the disciples were probably there observing as well. But this speaks to how much Martha thought of Christ on on two accounts. Because even in normal circumstances, it was an act of honor in this culture to go out and to meet somebody as they were approaching. With someone you wanted to honor, you didn't wait till they came to you. You left and you went to them. You went out to greet them as they were on their way. But to do that in the middle of Shiva, in the middle of one's grief, when, when people are Normally, coming to you was an action that spoke volumes. There is, there is nobody else that Martha would have done this for except for Jesus. You know, I, I think sometimes Martha gets a bad rap because of what happened in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus commended Mary for sitting at his feet and corrected Martha for being so bad or so busy. Not bad. <laughs> But we often have a tendency to think that Mary was, was more spiritual or had more faith of the two. But it, it's clear with both of these women uh, that these were women of faith. These women loved Christ. And Martha could not even contain herself when she heard that he was coming. But now look at, let's look at this conversation. Look what unfolds here. Look at what she says when she meets him. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now I think this statement is really reflective on what's been going on in Martha's heart and mind for, for days now. In fact, she and Mary had probably vocalized this very thing to one another repeatedly. Because it's, it's no coincidence that Mary is going to say the exact same thing when she first meets Christ, down in verse 32. They had likely repeatedly said to one another, If only he was here. If only Jesus had been here. Lazarus would still be alive. But these words, Martha's words, are a bit of a mixed bag. They're a mix of, of faith and confusion, and even disappointment. And Some try to say that this is this, that's not the case. This was only a statement of, of faith, that there is no implicit disappointment in Jesus here, as if she's just stating a fact of how things would have been different if Jesus were here, and then she shows that, that she knows that even the situation can change now that He is here. But that's, that's not what is going on at all. Martha's not expecting a miracle. Lazarus being raised from the dead is the furthest thing from Martha's mind. We know that because how she is about to respond to Christ when he says, your brother will rise again. She has no idea what he's talking about. And further, when Jesus does call for the opening of the tomb, it is Martha who objects. She is is not expecting a miracle here. So this is, this is not a statement of just sheer faith in what he could do in the moment. This was expressed and implicit disappointment that he had not been there. If you had been here, Lazarus would still be alive. The implication is, you should have been here. Where were you? This would not have happened if you were here. Understanding that helps us understand verse 22. This is not her expressing expectation for a miracle in the situation. It is her reasserting her continued belief in Christ. That despite her disappointment in his not showing up, she still believes that he alone has unique access and a unique relationship to God. It's clear that she doesn't understand the fullness of that yet. But her disappointment in Him, expressed, did not cause her to waver in her belief in Him. That's what's being said. But I want you to think about how much Martha does not know at this point. She does not know that Jesus delayed on purpose in order to let Lazarus die. She does not know that He he arrived precisely when He intended to. He is not late. She does not know that he knows everything about what she has been going through. She does not know that Lazarus is about to rise from the dead. And she does not know nor understand that this entire situation is playing out by God's sovereign design for God's glory. She knows none of that. All she knows is that her brother is dead. And Jesus was not there when she needed Him. But she still loves Him, and she still trusts Him. I hope in some ways this hits home for you. Are we not tempted to wrestle with the same conflicting thoughts and the trials that we pass through? How often do our trials put us in a place of wondering, where, where is God in all of this? What, what is he doing? How could this have happened? Why is it happening this way? How often are we tempted to think, Lord, if only you had been there. Or if you had done it this way. Or why did that happen and not this? Things did not have to turn out like this. Why did you not intervene? If you've never been there, you likely just haven't lived long enough. You will at some point. But we have these conflicting thoughts and questions for a reason. And it's because we are a people in process. We see through a glass dimly. We do not have the fullness of God's perspective in our lives. And we usually do not see the reasons for why things unfold the way that they do. And for that reason, in them, we are having to learn to trust Him when we don't understand. And that takes time, and that takes experience. Notice that Jesus does not rebuke Martha here. He's patient with her. Because through this, He is Growing her. He does not have the expectation that we all are to have all of this figured out right away, that we are all gonna to respond to every trial perfectly right away. That is not his expectation for you. He knows that we are in process. Well, we we may be the tradition of believers who, who proudly declare our belief in the sovereignty of God over all things. We may have our systematic theology ducks in a row. We may affirm the great confessions of the faith. And all of that is good. I'm not not casting shade on that. We should do those things. But you find out what you really believe in moments like this. It's one thing to make a grand confession on the mountaintop, it's another thing to cling to that truth when that's all you've got, when your faith is tested. You find out what you really treasure when you are stripped of what you love in this world. I remember years ago when my wife and I were first coming to embrace these truths, these wonderful doctrines of God's sovereignty over all things. It was the first time we were really seeing this in the scripture and we we're eating it up. We we're wrestling through these realities both biblically and philosophically. And at that time my my oldest daughter was just a baby. One night, I was, I was doing dishes while Lindsay was getting her ready for bed, and all of a sudden, I hear my wife screaming behind me. I turn from the sink, and I, I see her running towards me with my daughter in her hands, and she is just stark purple and stiffened up. Her arms are turned in, and Lindsay didn't know what was happening. Lindsay hands her to me, and she's not breathing. Something was clearly lodged in her throat. I knew what to do with a choking baby, so I turned her on her stomach, and I began to work on her back. To No avail. More. Nothing. I tried harder. Nothing. After a while, I got desperate, and I began to just pry her mouth open to see if I could put my finger in the back of her throat and dislodge whatever it was. Nothing. And eventually, she just went limp. Not breathing. And immediately, the thoughts come flooding into my mind. Why? God, why? Not my baby. I don't know how long it was. It felt like an eternity. She just remained in my arms, limp. We thought she had died. Just holding her. Then out of nowhere, she takes a deep breath. And she came to What had happened, we found out later from a specialist, was that she was not actually choking. She had a condition that affects some babies where when something upsets them, they can involuntarily block their air passage with their tongue, stiffen up, and the only way they come out of it is to lose consciousness. And then eventually they start breathing again. Scary stuff. Especially when you don't know what's happening. But this was in the middle of us wrestling with these things. And through that experience, we began to wrestle with the truth of who God is a little, a little differently. Not just philosophically, but experientially. Would I still believe and trust in His goodness? Would I believe what the Scripture says about His sovereignty and His love? Even if I were to lose my child. Even if He were to take my child. The Lord very much used that in our lives to expose some deficiencies in our understanding of who He is. To help us see how not in control we truly are. That in this world, we must hold even our children with an open hand. While trusting that His ways are higher than ours. And He's doing the same thing with Martha Martha loves Christ, but she clearly has some deficiencies in her views of who he is and his sovereignty and purposes and his love in this whole thing. These dots are not connecting yet, and Jesus knows that, and he's, he's pushed her to this point purposely because he loves her. Remember, that's how that began. Back in verse 5, Jesus tells, tells us intentionally that He delayed two days because He loves her. He is helping her to wrestle with these things, wrestle with who He is, not just philosophically, but experientially. And look what He says. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Now, this statement is a statement of purposeful ambiguity. Jesus is talking about what's about to happen, but he knew how Martha would take it, and he's he's drawing that out. Look how she responds, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection. On the last day. Now, that is a a good orthodox response from a Jew. Most of the Jews in that day very much believed in the resurrection from the dead. A, A few, like the Sadducees, did not, but the majority did. In Daniel chapter 12, the prophet Daniel said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This was standard belief for most of the Jews. and When Mary hears Jesus telling her that Lazarus will rise again, she immediately thinks he's he's speaking of the last day. And likely, just as as we do, this was a a common thing for them to talk about and to console one another with when they lost a loved one. And she's assuming that Jesus is offering that same line of, of comfort as probably many others already have. Which is why she has this sort of dissatisfied response. She was, she was hoping for more from Christ. I, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But that is not what Jesus is doing. It is not what he's talking about here. His, his ambiguity revealed this, this lack of understanding in Martha. Because while she acknowledges her hope and knowledge of the final resurrection, she does so divorced from her faith in Him. Her hope in the resurrection is is just abstract. It's not grounded in the source of the resurrection. Because she doesn't get it. She still does not understand the fullness of who she is talking to. Her faith in Christ is still being developed. It's it's growing, and Jesus is going to push that here with this remarkable response. Look what he says. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is a a passage, a text, that I, I try to work into. I try to work these words into almost every funeral that I do. Why? Because not only do his words directly confront Martha. Do you believe this? But they confront us all. And to bring this out in a funeral, to hear these words in the fresh reality of death, of having lost your loved one, is the exact same context in which they were first spoken. It's the exact same situation here. Martha's brother is dead. He's literally rotting in the tomb. And Jesus presses her with this truth in that context. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, Lazarus lived and believed in you. He loved you. He's dead. Clearly, as is often the case in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking on a lot more significant level than what can be understood here on the surface. This is, in fact, the fifth I am statement that he makes in this gospel. Again, revealing more and more of who he is as God, as God incarnate, God in the flesh. And here we really get a two-for-one deal. There's two claims in this one statement. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And Jesus explains each of these in the subsequent statements. When he says, I am the resurrection... Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, for the ones who believe in Christ, who are united in Christ, we will die, though he die, physically speaking. Jesus is acknowledging that. Lazarus is dead, absolutely. But we will be raised again to everlasting life. Future resurrection is not some abstract concept. It is bound up in the person of Christ and those who trust in him, who are united to him. Because of our union with him, we must be raised. Because he is the resurrection. It is an already established reality with just future consequences. For those of you who trust in Christ, that is your future. And your resurrection will not be like what we are about to see with Lazarus. Lazarus coming back from the dead is coming back in the same fallen state just as a demonstration of who Christ is. Your resurrection will be like Christ's resurrection. He was the firstborn from the dead, raised in perfection, raised in glory, raised to never die again as we will be. That's the first claim. But then he also says, and I am the life, which he explains by saying, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Shall never die. What does he mean by that? Because he just acknowledged that we do die. He said, though he die, and Lazarus is obviously dead, so in in what sense do we not die? Do we never die? Well, you have to understand what this life is that Jesus speaks of. He says, I am the life. And that's the same life He's been speaking of all through this gospel. It's eternal life. And what is eternal life? What is the true life that Jesus bestows upon all who believe? Union and knowledge of God. John 17 ought to be burned in your mind by now. Because that's where all of this is heading. Where Jesus defines it finally in the gospel. Before he dies, he finally defines life. And he says, this is eternal life that they know you. That's intimate knowledge, union, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's true life. And that life will not and cannot be taken from you even for a fraction of a second. Because your life is bound up with God. For the believer to to cease to be his true life means that God would have to cease to be. That's no exaggeration. That's what our union means. So when the believer dies physically, we are immediately in the presence of the Lord. Physical death only leads to greater life. It is the gateway to life. We go from life to life, from glory to glory. For us, death is gain, as the Apostle Paul put it. You see, true death, true death is not the dying of the body. True death is the judgment of the soul in hell for sin. And in that sense, everyone who lives and believes in Christ will never die, will never die because of Christ. You see, Christ is the center of our hope. Our hope is not in, in an abstract, ungrounded resurrection, a future event, or a vague concept of eternal life or, or heaven. Our hope is in Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no resurrection. Apart from Christ, there is no life. He alone is the believer's hope. And every other blessing from God is a consequence of our hope in Him. Our faith in Christ. Our faith is not in a future resurrection. Our faith is in Christ and the resurrection comes as a result of Him. You see, Martha didn't understand this yet. That's why in a very dissatisfied, humdrum manner, she she stated that she she knew, I I know that there's a future resurrection. But Jesus changes the focus of Martha's hope off of a future event and onto a present reality, onto himself. Her faith and her hope was misplaced. And he brings her back to the reality of who he is. Is And then he presses her. Do you believe this, Martha? And I think he is pressing that question on all of our hearts here again. No matter how long you have called yourself a Christian, you need to answer this question repeatedly in your life. Do you believe this? When you walk through the darkest of valleys, you need to answer this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who He says He is? Is He the center of your faith? Or do you, do you comfort yourself with just vague ideas about God and that we'll, we'll just all be in a better place one, night, one day? The question is not do you believe in God or some vague ideas about heaven. The question is do you believe in Christ, the Son of God sent from heaven, God who took on flesh, who lived a life that we could not live, who died the death that we deserve, who rose from the grave, who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father even now. Do you believe in Him? Do you trust Him? Even when your life is falling apart, do you trust Him? Because in the scope of eternity, nothing else matters. In our trials, no matter how dark they are as we pass through them, will one day seem like a very small thing in glory. Do you know what the most loving thing that Jesus did for Martha in this story? I'll give you a hint. It's not not bringing her brother back from the dead. Lazarus is going to die again. It's this moment right here where he reveals more of himself to her and presses her faith in his direction. Look how she responds. She said, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What a beautiful confession. By saying that she believes that he is the one who is coming into the world, she's, she's confessing that he is indeed God's long-awaited-for Deliverer, the Messiah and Savior of God's people. It's in the midst of her trial that she comes to see and confess more of who Christ is. And it is not by coincidence that her words are almost a mirror image of John's purpose statement for this entire gospel. You remember that? John chapter 20 John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Nothing's more important than that. You see, for us who who have such a temporal perspective, we we often get wrapped up in the here and the now, and for good reason. I mean, it's all we know. But God has eternal purposes at work in our lives. If we could see through His eyes, we would understand what He is doing. But He hasn't given us that privilege for a reason. Because He's building our faith in Him. He is sanctifying us. He is bringing us to a place in our faith where we treasure Christ more than anything else in this world. Where we trust Him, even when, perhaps especially when, we don't understand what's going on. Some of you are further along in that process than others, but none of us are completely there yet. Look for Christ in the midst of your trials, He will reveal more of Himself to you. He is working, He has His purposes. And the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold or silver or anything else that this world could offer you. Don't don't waste your trials. Use them. Use them to draw near to Christ, to behold Him, to trust Him, to know Him, to wean yourself off of the comforts of this world and to grow in your anticipation of an eternity with him. That's what they're for. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these grand truths. Thank you that you have revealed this to us, that you have told us that you are at work he even told us that we should not be surprised when the fiery trials come upon us. Lord, you are beyond comprehension. Your ways are higher than ours. Help us to trust in your character when we can't understand our situation. Help us to rest in who you are in the eternal promises that you have made through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ and we can't see much else in this world. Father, we need your grace to do that. And we ask for grace upon grace. In Christ's name, amen.